Hello, Radio Survivor listeners. You are tuned in to episode number 289. This week's show is about women's voices in the history of radio and podcasting. And our guests are Jennifer Highland Wong, adjunct professor at University of Wisconsin, Madison, and Jenny Stover, associate professor of English at Binghamton University. What you're about to hear in a special podcast-only introduction to the interview is Jennifer Waits and myself, Eric Klein, um, explain in detail uh, why having Jennifer Highland Wong and Jenny Stover on together uh, today is so exciting to us um, because of what their previous interviews on the show had meant to us. So I'm really excited to have both of you back on the show, Jenny and Jennifer, because we recorded podcasts with the two of you in March 2018, which it's hard to believe it was that long ago. But both of your episodes are episodes that that we mention a lot when we're talking to other guests on the show. They were both really influential. Jennifer Wong, we had you on the show talking about the early history or women's contributions to the early history of podcasting. And that really kind of changed my understanding of, of that. And then Jenny Stover, you came on to talk about sound studies, the sounding out blog and the sonic color line. And, and that opened our ears to ideas about what podcasts should sound like and how we listen and how we can open our ears. So, you know, we thought it'd be fun to bring you both back on to talk about, women in sound in honor of, of women's history month. Um, but, but yeah, I thought it would just be fun to chat about kind of the, the influence of both of your episodes on radio right. survivor, the, the podcast and radio show. Yeah, and, I, and thank you for those contributions. Yeah, both of those episodes. Well, Jennifer waits, I should, I, I also want to make sure to mention at the top that, um, you know, Paul Reese Mandel and I, uh, started the, show and you were an early you were you were a part of the podcast from the beginning but around this time that episode 135 and episode 132 were produced was the time that you took um you took over you took over leadership of producing the show and um in a way that uh like uh well in some of those pushed, episodes pushed i was more in a new direction right and some of those episodes i was more of a guest right. um and you can hear that I'm sort of like a guest in the space in a way, which is interesting. And, you know, we could talk more about that in yeah. the context of women in podcasting, yeah, ladies. Totally. <laughs> uh, yeah, because in the beginning, Jennifer came on as the expert in college radio. And it was like, Paul and Eric have some stuff to say. And then Jennifer gives a college radio uh like a, a, a college radio segment, a segment that is devoted entirely to college radio, separate from the thing that Paul and Eric had started the show talking about for a hundred episodes, 130 episodes. And all of this, of course, was back before we were a radio program. So before we had really um, entirely focused ourselves on what our, in, our, our full mission was, you know, we, we started the show with, with a love for radio, but it became, but around this time in March of 2018, when Jennifer Highland Wong and Jenny Stover were each guests individually on separate shows in the same month, uh, that was a time where 
it was it was pro- I, I actually didn't I don't have the calendar right now, but that was a time when we were about to become a radio show. We hadn't yet become a radio show. And Jennifer Waits produced these both these episodes and they both sort of um completely warped the entire direction of the rest of our project around around both of these like um the gravity of both of these topics uh continued to have a pull on every episode that came after it like we kept saying sound studies and then we changed the tagline of the show to radio and sound jenny stover i don't know if we gave you we give you credit constantly for that my goodness that's really exciting you have been name checked because of that but also not every time we say radio and sound but that's that was one of the things and also you know the word sound studies comes out of our mouths now nonstop after episode 132 of the podcast so yeah uh, i wanted to start i wanted to make sure we like (laughs) we rattled that uh we rattled the cage about that that topic at the beginning right yeah we're giving we're giving these two women we're giving both of you your due in the radio survivor history as well so yeah amazing so i'd love to hear more about um you know your thoughts about that jenny and jennifer well, mainly, I think we need to get commemorative tattoos to honor this moment. Um, <laughs> one thirty-two and one thirty-five, like it'd be Jennifer one thirty-two and one thirty-five, like that'd be amazing. I'm I'm just really honored to be back and pleased to be back because I remember recording that episode, and as soon as we finished recording, I was like, "Oh man, <laughs> really effed that up." <laughs> <laughs> that was my immediate reaction. Like, oh, it was the first time I had been ever uh, interviewed, and right, I um, yeah, yeah. I just, I was just like, oh, that's that's Jennifer Wong, who Jennifer Highland Wong, who who uh, didn't f anything up that episode. It was wonderful to have <laughs> you know. on. But Jennifer, did you watch that editing? <laughs> it was fine. I don't remember. I edited there too. Effed up. No, no it's great. I, oh, I see what you mean. And Je- I, Jennifer, just I listened to it. I just listened to it this week and it was incredible. And you know, what surprised me so much was that our interview with you was maybe half an hour or less. And, and now we're having guests on for the entire length of the episode. And, and there's, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes of the episode is Paul and I, Paul and I just chatting about stuff, which I was really surprised. And, um, you know, it kind of reminds me how the show was really a different show back then and that we didn't, we didn't necessarily have a guest on, you know, we might do a guest interview, but it was, it didn't, um, it wasn't, it didn't um, necessarily last for the length of the entire show. And it also surprised me because that was such an influential show. And we keep coming back to the things you've talked about in that half hour, it was jam packed with amazing information. And so I'm surprised listening to it again, that it was so short. Um, and it was excellent. Thank you. Well, I am going to use it to teach. I'm co-teaching a course on podcasting at Binghamton in the fall with a colleague in the cinema department, Monteith McCollum. And it's going to be half advanced cinema students and half uh, English graduate students who want to learn how to broadcast their research. And I think listening to that episode would be you know, essential at the, the beginning of that, that class. We'll have to get an edit for you where we cut all the fat out of of all the nonsense that we added to the Exactly. All of our 
you know, meanderings at the end. Um, you know, what's really cool, Jenny Stover, uh, we had a recent episode with Hannah McGregor talking about academic podcasts and peer-reviewed nice. podcasts. So that's a, that's a topic that it's just interesting even three years later to be thinking about the different ways that academics are using podcasts and, and, and trying to find a way for their institutions to see more value in that very important work that this public scholarship can be, you know, very scholar, very scholarly and, and something that you can peer review and that you can put on your resume as, you know, part of your, academic work. So, so we're definitely, we definitely continue to be interested in those conversations and, you know, podcasting is changing so much every year. So. Yes, my goodness. We started on sounding out. I think maybe our, I mean, we may have been podcasting for seven or eight years already, which feels like, you know, I don't know, 25 in broadcasting. If you think about how much has changed from from those early days to to now it's it's a whole new world yeah we're stubbornly free format still so we'll see how that goes when we when we start back up again it's like it's been so long that i feel like that will like um it'll come back into style right It it was a good idea at the beginning to and by free format you're talking about how um your show sounds different than the vast majority of podcasts these days, especially the ones that are the top of the charts. Yes, in the sense that we, um, well, free format also in that each of our podcasts is is organic, that we don't really have a, like, they're all going to be chat casts, or they're all going to be, right. you know, history recreations, or they're going to be sound walks, or you know, we're really all a mix of those. And we have some art pieces, we have some um, round tables, we have, you know, some found audio, we really try to, um, you know, Aaron Tremel, our, our editor, he teaches out at UC Irvine. And he really tries to, to keep it keep it interesting and to also continually bring new people into podcasting. And that was one of our missions at the beginning, you know, Aaron would take, you know, people would send him edit instructions and he would do the editing and producing. And like, it was about not having things come to us perfectly, but encouraging more people to just start making recordings and, you know, figure out what to do with them. So we try to stay like on the side of diversity of material and diversity of voices, as opposed to high end kind of audio audio file stuff. And if, if we get that, but, you know, well, we, we always, you know, we shoot for a good sound, but, um, you know, that's not always the kind of good sound we're, we're looking for. We want to make sure it, it says, it says something. And, uh, you know, we do get, we get grumpy mail all the time about, about, you know, it doesn't sound good to me when I'm listening to it while I'm working out, you know, whatever, but that's, uh, that's not our, our main, our main audience. Yeah, I love I love that. And I love, you know, we talked about that when we had you on before about that whole punk rock ethos of it about yeah. access. And, yeah. and I think it fits with some of Jennifer Highland Wong's work, too, about women, you know, women podcasters who might not be pro casters necessarily. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think that I, I felt a spark that it might be. That, is it time yeah. for the radio show? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, I'm going to do an official like introduction. It's going to sound a little more formal, but we can continue being... What? I'll be keeping my eye on the clock. Okay, thank you. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. Hi, I'm Eric Klein. And on today's show, we're talking about women and sound. Our guests are scholars Jennifer Hyland Wong, who is an adjunct professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Jenny Stover, who is an associate professor of English at Binghamton University and the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Sounding Out Sound Studies blog and podcast. Welcome to both of you, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. It's a pleasure. So a few years back, we had some incredible conversations with both of you on the show about sound studies, the cultural politics of listening, and the history of women's voices on the airwaves and on podcasts. As we celebrate Women's History Month, it's a great opportunity to revisit these themes with an eye towards representation as well. So I thought maybe that we could first situate ourselves a bit historically in sound Women have played an important role in radio and podcasting from the very beginning, yet their contributions aren't always a part of the official stories of audio history. And we often think of radio and podcasting as male-dominated spaces. So, Jennifer Highland Wong, could you give us a snapshot of this history and women's contributions to those early days of radio and podcasting? Um, I mean, what we know, what what what. Uh, the little that we know, <laughs> what we do know, um, is that women had a big contribution that that before um, mediums like radio or even podcasting got networked or professionalized or <laughs> routinized, standardized, um, women actually were part of, of, of a very gendered, uh, a very gendered mix, sound mix. Um, I, I'm thinking particularly in the early ages of radio, in the early um, uh, uh, 1920s, Women uh, were uh, participating in a wide range as radio announcers, as station managers, um, in various kinds of roles in in radio. And it was really the process of um, those becoming more commercialized and more routine that sort of pushed women's voices sort of uh, out of uh, various areas of radio. And. You know, and that's something we've talked about on the show. We've even had episodes about people like Amy Semple McPherson, who was this amazing um, evangelist and radio station owner. And and we often don't, you know, those of us today often don't hear that story about this very powerful woman. And and I've seen it across other industries too. Um, I, I recently watched a documentary about Elise Guy Blachet, who was, you know, ostensibly one of the first filmmakers, you know, ever, not to mention the first female director and, and, and her contributions to film, even though they were written about at the time, they were erased by people who are writing that history down the road. Um, so, yeah, so I'd love to hear a bit, um, Jenny Stover, if you have thoughts about, about that dynamic and, you know, women's voices sort of being erased even in that official history as time went on, even though they might have been recognized as station owners and contributors at the beginning. Um, and so there's that dynamic of being erased that I'm curious about, but also, um, now I'm adding on two questions, but also how women's voices have been interpreted over the airwaves uh, over the years. 
So I'm complicating it. <laughs> uh, no, that's that's a fantastic question because for many reasons, I found in my own research on race and sound and its intersections with gender that the period of nationalizing of radio was also a period when Black people and people of color were pus- pushed off the national airwaves as well. And there was actually, you know, dramatically less presence on the airwaves for Black people in particular in the 40s than there was in the 20s. And, you know, this includes, you know, important roles like show announcers. There are no, almost no Black show announcers. Um, there were very limited spots for musicians. Um, I studied Lena Horne quite a bit and a lot of the circumscribing of her voice and the way that she would often be placed alone on a show in a segment where she wasn't interacting with other people on the show or she was only interacting with the host. And so there's a way that especially unscripted black voices and black women's voices were, were marginalized on the, on the radio. And also, you know, they weren't considered as audience members either. And I've, I've seen a lot of, um, archival discussion of, of advertising and, and why no one was even reaching or considering black people and black women in particular as listeners. So it was, it was on all in all areas, um, you know, writers unions in terms of voiceover work, even in terms of, of musicians that there were segregated musicians unions in Los Angeles where all of most of the radio work was orchestral and it was directed toward the white union because it was thought by radio station owners that that's who played orchestral music. And anything that went to the black union was jazz or blue. So there was a sonic color line set up in terms of, of music, too. So it, it definitely was a period where um, all of those marginalized voices were further marginalized by the sound of radio on, on air for nationalized stations. Yeah, that's. So, so are you both arguing that in the very, very early days of radio, there may have been more diversity and more freedom than there was as radio progressed? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, if I can jump, jump in, I was thinking about um, a quote from um, 1933. It's, there were a couple of radio researchers uh, named Gordon Alport and Hadley Cantrell, and they analyzed what kind of voices, particularly what kind of women's voices would succeed on the air. And they were saying that America's audiences were partial to men's voices. Um, but more specifically, they found women with vulgar or uncouth sounding voices far more pleasing uh, than uh, a cultured woman's voice. And so they, they explain that, quote, most of us like our women radio artists beautiful, as the singer Jessica Dragonette presumably is, or funny, as the comedians Clara Lou and M certainly are. And so even as early as 1933, here's this parameter being put around, you know, you could be pretty, which was very hard on radio, right? <laughs> you know, with the visual element out or funny. But that's it. And why, uh, I don't know, I don't even know what a cultured voice is, but why, why was a cultured voice displeasing? Um, There was a fear of, um, they, they argued it was uh, that they, they felt the audience had an anti-marm school complex 
that they didn't like to be preached to. And so that a woman with a culture voice who knew what she was talking about, um, I, I, I think about in this period previous to this, um, in between 1928 and 1932, there was a series of daytime homemaking shows where the first kinds of radio programs for women. And so you'd have a lot of home economic professors, um, home economic experts who would be telling you how to scientifically manage your home, how to, um, how to raise your family. And, uh, they, they interpreted the, the relative lack of success of those kinds of programs to op- people's opinions about not wanting to be preached to by women. I can, it feels, it feels like there's almost like a little bit of like Elizabeth Warren vibe, you know, like, hmm. like the, the, the kind of critique that was made about her voice during the campaign, uh, you know, that, 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 that she was explaining things to people. Um, there was a, there was a lot of, um, uh, undue sensitivity huh. to the tone of her voice and how she explained things. Uh, and, and that was certainly, it, it, it was um, found even in the early 1930s. And Jennifer Highland Wong, were there women's voices before that who were on the radio uh, as the experts that then, you know, were, did women take up that space prior to this moment? And and what can you describe that space again? What's this third space where somebody gets to have authority that now I associate with a male voice? What do we, yeah. what do we even call that? Someone who knows what they're talking about, a grown up. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think I think Frances Dyson is a, a kind of a radio um, theorist, and and I think she had said something like the voice, the voice of uh, uh, of of. Uh, the, the authoritative voice of radio is the voice of a man. It's the voice of the singular, um, the, the voice of the authoritative. Um, and uh, in particular, I was doing some research on um, an early radio program called Clara Lou and M. And one of the, the interesting things I found in my analysis is the way that they designed the soundscape to make it sound like the voices of the many, um, that to, to make it sound like all of these women were sort of talking on top of each other. Um, and that was one of the major critiques of the show and why that perhaps it wasn't appropriate for primetime air it's because they had all of these, because you had the voice of women uh, in primetime and then they were moved to daytime in 1932 as a way to, um, to add a sort of gender divide to the broadcast schedule. You're you're talking about a show called Clara Lou and M and I want you to tell us a little more about it (laughs) and please forgive me. Is it okay for me to compare it to a television show, the view in which a group of women sit around a table, you know, talking about the issues of the day on TV? Yeah. I mean the, the, what was really fascinating about this program was that, um, it was designed to be uh, uh, designed to be three women who um, would go to the back fence. They lived in the same sort of kind of house. They would kind of go outside and meet each other each day and gossip for fifteen minutes. This is a radio so, show. This is a radio show. So you were eavesdropping on this on this these gossiping women. Um, uh, in actuality, the three women who played and originated the roles were Northwestern University graduates. Um, and of uh, their school of speech and dramatics. Um, and they were pretending to be sort of lower class, sort of Midwestern housewives um, for this, this conceit. And um, what they essentially did was really kind of extraordinary because they, um, they were appearing first over WGN. They would 
um, t- read the newspaper and, um, and come up with that day's script. So they wrote and produced and voiced everything in the, um, in the program. And then they intended the show to be um, a, these group of women talking about politics and what was in the news which was such a rarity <laughs> that at that time, um, and that uh, and, th- and that they would kind of get their messages out kind of that way. So they had to um, pretend in some ways. They, the originators had to pretend to be what they were not um, over the air. Clara Lou and M. And this was on the air in the 1930s. Did you say? Yeah, it started in 1930. Um, it's WGN, and then uh, within a few weeks was picked up and it was on NBC until uh, 19, on and off until like 1936, 37. Yeah, didn't you share with us the last time that you were on that they, um, that this, that they were big enough celebrities that they had a role to play in, um, in a the inauguration. inauguration? Yep, yep. They, they were the only, um, in, in NBC and CBS's coverage of the FDR's, um, first inauguration in 1933, there were just newsmen who, you know, eminent newsmen who were kind of speaking about all the different kind of goings on. Um, and then they were the only voice of women in their program. Um, and the voice that they had was of these kind of cartoonish housewives. So they actually couldn't speak in their own voices, but had to adopt these cartoonish kind of coups and twitters and <laughs> and things to um to to even be on the air so that was like the way that the institution wanted them sort of represented that and that makes me think jennifer highland wong makes me think about jennifer stover's work with the sonic color line and 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 how people often have to take on different voices maybe you could talk a little bit about that jenny stover um, during this period of time, perhaps on the radio, what was that like for women, women of color? Yes, it was. Uh, it was an extremely difficult period um, where you had very famous actresses who would go on and do radio, and they would be asked to read um, accented dialect script that was written by white readers and white writers to sound black to white listeners. So they would have to put on uh, a stylized racist kind of stereotypical accent in order to be able to perform and to be able to, to be on radio shows. Barbara Savage, the radio historian has called this essentially aural blackface at the time um, in the forties, Elaine Locke, a famous professor from Howard, called it the cornfield voice. And it was a way of presenting the, the color line on, on radio. And so you had women that were at the, the intersection of the kind of performance of womanhood that um, Jennifer Highland Wong just spoke of, and then a certain kind of certain kind of, of racial performance. Hattie McDaniel was on the radio, and she's someone that um, on Beulah was um, having to struggle to to work within that. There were women such as Butterf- Butterfly McQueen who actually refused to to speak um, in dialect, and she was essentially pushed out of a radio career. And you had, you know, resistant reactions and resistant moves anywhere in between there. And so Black women came up with a variety of of strategies on air. 
but it was um, very difficult for them. And oftentimes, if there was a a fear that they could not be distinguished by white listeners as black, they would be let go from from programs. And this, that this was presented as realism on the radio, I think is is you know has been very damaging for for women and for black women in particular. Um, Wow. Uh, Jenny Stover, you just described a culture of w- black women's voices, particularly being um, either either uh, um, distorted by their by by the white people who had the power over how they reached the airwaves or, or their careers were defined by white people. Was this in the 1940s, I'm assuming? Yes, this was in the 1940s. Yeah. And so it's. Um, yeah, I just wanted to like say it twice into the microphone that that this was that there was a moment where where a different a different radio was possible in the United States uh and then and then um and then those microphones were taken away essentially well and I like I like Jenny Stover that you're pointing out that there were women who tried to subvert that and I'd love to hear more about um cuz I'm hoping today we can we can celebrate a lot of the women who kind of refuse to fall into the stereotypes and, and are really powerful people. I hope that we can point our listeners to, you know, radio shows and podcasts featuring women who have really, you know, voiced their truth. So any examples you can share about that would be, would be great to hear. And maybe we start with those early years and then we flash forward into podcasting, you know, momentarily. Yes. Well, one of the, actually one of the voices that I want to mention is someone that I am working on researching and I was supposed to present on her this year at the radio preservation task force conference, which was unfortunately put off to COVID um, because of COVID. But I'd like to mention that, you know, in terms of the, the archive, one of the most amazing voices that I found was that of Estelle Edmerson, who collected oral histories of Black radio performers, writers in the 1950s. And it was for her MA thesis at UCLA called A Descriptive Study of the American Negro in United States Professional Radio, 1922 to 1953. It is phenomenal. It is a PhD project, not a, not a master's thesis. It's phenomenal where, you know, she went and talked to Mady Norman and Lillian Randolph and wonderful Smith, Florida Miller. She also talked with white executives from CBS and NBC who told her astonishing, um, overtly racist things, probably not assuming, knowing, you know, thinking that it would, anything would, would come of it. And I am grateful to it. You know, it's the foundation for, for my own research. And so I want to, you know, talk more about who she was, Estelle Louise Edmerson Banks. Um, she grew up um, in Austin, Texas, and she was a drum majorette, a touring musician, a radio writer, performer, singer, dancer, playwright, and musician in Los Angeles. And she helped desegregate the Musicians Union in the mid-50s in Los Angeles. So I am really excited in, you know, sharing sharing more about her and doing more research on her and, um, yeah, you know, getting, getting more people um, aware of, you know, the work that she's done and the importance of this thesis to my understanding of radio and, and um, 
and the Sonic Color line in radio. That's really I'm exciting. Grateful. Jenny Stover, so you're you're describing Estelle Edmerson's project. Yes. Uh, and like, yeah, so can we, let's talk a little bit more about what you learned from that project because I'm, I'm hearing, you know, here on Radio Survivor, we, we've already mentioned how many microphones were literally and metaphorically taken away from women of color, how many times they were, their voices were distorted by white people who, who, who had the money to, to distort their voices, you know, literally like making them, uh, read the dialect that was not the voice that they would choose to, to use on the radio, stuff like that. But now then you just said, you just told us that there were uh, black people on the radio. What were these radio stations that, that uh, Estelle Edmerson um, studied for those decades that you mentioned? Well, those are the things that I'm actually reconstructing right now and and trying to find out, you know, a lot of the traces I, I have of her are from, you know, brief mentions in, in newspapers. And so that's, those are one of the things as a scholar that I've been, been working on uncovering. I came up, I'm trying to even remember how I found her dissertation. I had to order an, uh, an archival copy, a physical copy. Um, it's been a few years. I, I, when I was studying at Cornell, I came across it in a database and ordered it from UCLA and, and had the, the pleasure of, of reading it. And, you know, she, she gets very, very candid, you know, information from people that she's talking to, like the case of, of Wonderful, um, Wonderful Smith, who was on the Red Skeleton show. And he formally had been fired according to the, the, the network because of um, going to fight for the war. But he told her um, for her, for her research that, you know, as I was talking about that, he felt that he was let go because his voice, it was a sketch comedy show. And because he had to slip in and out of so many characters, um, he got, they got mail about Southern reader, Southern listeners in particular, white Southern listeners being confused as to his ethnicity. And he's like, no one will ever say it, but that's why I got fired from the show. And there's a lot of those, those pieces in there. And she also taught, you know, tells the story of Butterfly McQueen, who we know, um, you know, so many people only know her work from Gone with the Wind and, and the caricature that she performed in, in Gone with the Wind and the particular tone of, of her voice, um, very high pitched, you know, very, you know, presented as, um, as incompetent in that film. And, you know, she opens up a whole nother, a whole nother side to her where she quit the Amos and Andy show because she did not want to be a maid on that show. Um, that was not why she, why she went on there. And, um, so, you know, a lot of those, those powerful moments, um, I was able to, you know, call and share from her work. So, like I said, I'd like to know more about who she was, how she came to study this at UCLA, more about the, the, you know, her, her, her mission, um, while she was there in the industry. Yeah, well, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that I think that that just that to add on to what Jenny Sober was saying, um, <laughs> just because the tendency was to marginalize and limit the voices, some voices got through, yeah. and that's like what's the most fun to study as a scholar is to look at you know who gets through and who gets to you know why did they why did they um, 
what particular chemistry, you know, what particular alchemy is happening that they get to, to um, have their voices on the radio, even in a sort of warped kind mm-hmm. of way. I feel like a lot of it's persistence, you know, I feel like yeah. with her, you know, just constantly pounding the pavement and showing up and, um, you know, pushing. And I think that's, that's definitely, you know, a very, very important. Yeah. And, and so like I mentioned, I think it'd be really interesting Jennifer Highland Wong, we've talked to you before about the parallels between the early days of radio and the, with the early days of podcasting and how women were a part of the production of podcasts from the very beginning as they were in radio. Um, so if maybe we could talk about that and also with an eye to representation, like we're talking about now, were all women making podcasts in these early days and what types of podcasts were we seeing? Well, in the early um, in the early two thousands and two thousand five, there were a lot of um, uh, a lot of different kinds of experiments. I don't think we'll ever know exactly how much because what we have left are the traces, right? Whatever we can find on the internet wayback machine and the internet archive, mm-hmm. um, or or what what the the people who had the means to save their. Um, their podcasts on SoundCloud or um, some of these kind of podcast directories. Um, but there was actually um, a wider diversity than you would think. Uh, uh, in particular, I'm doing some work right now looking at early knitting podcasts, which is odd. You would think that's a very tactile medium, <laughs> not, not predisposed. But then when you start to think about how, um, you know, radio's uh, biggest comedy was a blackface routine and, um, and one of the most popular radio shows involved a ventriloquist and his dummy, um, it, it makes a little bit, it makes a little bit more sense. Um, the, uh, they were, um, they were a wide ranging group of women with a different views of how to use the medium. And so I, I kind of think of it this way. Um, the radio amateurs in the early 1920s had a really different idea how to um, use the medium. They wanted to speak to each other. They wanted to see how far their signals could go. They wanted to entertain each other. Um, and they did not envision this kind of commercial future. And I think in that same way, the early women podcasters um, we're interested in forming communities. Um, and in particular, what I'm discovering thus far early in my research is that uh, knitting podcasts were more often um, vehicles to develop these kind of communities of practice as a way to practice that sort of hab- a hobby. I'm seeing it in the, some of these early knitting podcasts. Um, one, one podcast called Craft Lit, they, um, read classical literature for you to knit by. Um, another, um, uh, cast on with Brenda Dane, they focus on playing sort of great indie music that she found, that she finds from the Podsafe network. And this is as early as 2005. So one of the first, uh, you know, among the first dozens of, of podcasts that were, that were done. Um, and so she tells stories and and has this great indie music for people to knit by. So it's um, a way to sort of cultivate community um, in addition to develop this sort of practice. And so they're really different idea than um, uh, 
than cereal, perhaps, or, mm-hmm. um, or, or, or the more kind of commercial broadcast. How can I make profit out of that? Yeah, Jenny Stover, what, what are your thoughts about those early days of podcasting? Oh my goodness, that sounds, I, I think it sounds fantastic. The having, having, having someone read you literature to nip by it actually reminds me of the practice in the factories in, you know, kind of turn of the, turn of the 19th century where there would be readers, um, readers employed to read while folks like rolled cigars or whatever their, you know, their factory work was. And that was actually a very important role. Um, so yeah, this little, little sound aside, um, <laughs> the the author James Weldon Johnson was um, used to used to read out loud um, at factories as he was starting to write. In terms of early podcasting and sounding out, I was looking to see who some of our early podcasters were, and I think we started in 2010, and we have um, a lot of it was for documentation in a way, like Miley Colbert was a regular writer for us. She's a sound artist working out of Portugal. And, you know, she put together, you know, various interviews that she had done with sound scholars like Hildegard Westerkamp and folks about, you know, what a soundscape is, what are sound walks, and really documenting women's role in the field. And which is, it's like, that kind of gap is like her filling that gap, but then her also documenting her as a sound artist doing this kind of work. So it's like this, this double, um, double documentation and representation for, for women. We also have um, our regular, still a regular podcaster. She's been with us several years, Marcella Ernest, who is um, an indigenous sound artist and scholar. And she uses her podcast series as a way to, take on and discuss, you know, issues of decolonizing language um, and language practice. And we, the one sound, one podcast of hers that I use regularly when I teach is on different, um, different perceptions of, of silence and, and how silence speaks in various indigenous communities. And she has, um, she brings on the indigenous women from, from multiple parts of um, North America to talk about their perspectives on, on silence. And that has been a really another form of, of documentation at the intersection of race and gender. And that's been really powerful. So we, um, on sounding out have have seen that kinds of work really intensely in our podcast series and that's the kinds of work that you know we really appreciate and welcome that's the voice yeah. of jenny stover who is our guest today on radio survivor jenny stover is associate professor of english at bingington university and co-founder and editor-in-chief of the sounding out podcast the sound studies podcast. And our guest today as well on Radio Survivor is Jennifer Highland Wong, adjunct professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. My name is Eric Klein, and my co-host is Jennifer Waits. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on right now in podcasting. It's been an interesting year. We, As we're recording this, we're celebrating, well, celebrating, we're marking a year of the pandemic. And Jennifer Highland Wong, I know you've written about stay-at-home podcasters and and how is that different right now when a lot of us are at home so this idea of staying at home and podcasting um and there have been a lot of changes 
in the world related to sound with a lot of people on, on Zoom and video calls. So how does that affect our overall understanding of the soundscape? And I'd love to have both of your takes on it, but maybe start with Jennifer Highland Wong on, on who stay-at-home podcasters are. That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, uh, traditionally the sort of moniker stay at home podcast, like marks almost like a personal denigration in some sense of like, this is all that I'm doing, right? You know, like this. um, And, and I think that the soundscape is changed by the fact that houses aren't um, as ideologically traditionally gendered in the, in the sense that there's not this, there's not a home space that, uh, that women are supposed to be in. There's not this office space that men are supposed to be there. There's a, um, a sort of diversity, um, of, of people sort of living and managing, um, in their own houses. I'm kind of thinking about, um, makes me think about my uh, students. I'm working right now on, um, I'm teaching a history of broadcasting class and I'm having my students keep a pandemic media journal and their job is to, um, to kind of write down how they're using media, how they're using media like headphones and earbuds um, to keep out sounds from other people in the house, from roommates, from family members, um, writing down what media they're using, how much media they're using, what their feelings are about the media. Um, that they're using. And um, yeah, it just kind of makes me think about that. You know, um, uh, th- there's a lot of negotiation that's happening um, kind of right now. And I think Jenny Stover, well, the listeners don't know this, but I think Jenny Stover <laughs> had to mute herself because somebody's phone was ringing, which is just like the perfect thing to happen as we're all recording this podcast at home. Yes. Um, I was thinking as you were talking that, you know, that, that stay at home podcasting sounds kind of like it's integrating because of the way that stay at home mom has been gendered and denigrated yeah. and it's borrowing from that, that term. So mm-hmm. I think there's a, you know, talking about the gendering of that is, is really key. And it's, it's interesting because there, there has been gendering of the household and, and it might be in terms of podcasting, like what I'm hoping, I guess, is, you know, more women having facility with technology in ways that in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, that women were actively discouraged from, um, you know, there's a piece from Kathleen Hanna where um, it's called I'm Not Playing Dead, where she talks about how her brother told her that his amp would, would shock her if she plugged the, the cord in and to her guitar. And so, you know, and for years she talked about like how that made her fearful of, of playing around with his sound equipment. So, you know, um, I've done some work on the tape recorder and the gendering of the tape recorder, recorder as male after World War II. And that was the era of, the hi-fi stereo and there's arguments that 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 because of the open floor plan in these ranch houses that that was kind of you know men's way of using technology to isolate themselves and claim space in the domestic space that this kind of was deemed the women's domain to take care of so the fact that now technology might be serving as a way to you know challenge the gendering of space is really exciting. It makes it sound much more exciting than us all being holed up at home with our headphones. Like there's space wars going on, you know, and we're resisting in those, those ways, big and small. It's, it's fantastic. 
And I'm, I'm not sure how, um, like, I don't, I don't have a lot of evidence yet about how these women podcasters are podcasting now with the entire family sort of at home or being in a sort of lockdown pandemic sort of situation. But certainly, um, the kind of production practices that they had, um, uh, recording in stolen moments in front of the um, bedroom mirror, uh, sitting in a closet, um, uh, you know, uh, doing their show notes um, in a car in a minivan, watching the soccer game, or you know, or you know, working, you know, all of those spaces that are these just like little spaces for sort of creativity are harder and harder to find right now in sort of pandemic lockdown. And so I'm, yeah, I just sort of wonder how those podcasters right now who are trying to just have some space to have a voice how they are even continuing there's a whole thing there's a whole paper that can be written just on the soundscape of the closet like the the, the notion Mm -hmm. of like broadcasting from your you know essentially broadcasting from your closet well and this conversation is also making me think about how how all of us um those domestic spaces we're now seeing domestic spaces of our local broadcasters on TV. Yes. And so everything has changed and, and we're all becoming more accustomed to hearing imperfect audio, even on our local news. You know, I live in a major market and the local news, we have people on, you know, the morning news show who are broadcasting from their kid's bedroom. Um, and these are men too, you know, so we're seeing men in domestic spaces, including yeah. bedrooms and kitchens. The, the pandemic began Think back a year ago to the one of the first memes of the mm. pandemic, and it was when the dad, the British dad, I believe, and his Korean uh, wife and their child entered his room and interrupted his spot on the BBC. Um, that was how this all began. And I, I just watched uh, last week, I believe, a different dad in a different room uh, greet just so smoothly deal with the fact that his daughter walked into the TV shot, said hi to him. He said, hello, sweetheart. And like gave her a kiss, but didn't like miss a beat in his, uh, in his, uh, you know, interview about politics. Um, his, his personal stock went way up for me in how he gracefully handled his daughter's interruption on that television program he was appearing on. Yeah. So yeah. How, so how do you think this will change? broadcasting that we're seeing these domestic spaces and hearing, you know, I guess we're probably hearing them on, on the radio as well. I'm more attuned to it perhaps when I see it on television, because it's so obvious that somebody is in their child's bedroom broadcasting, Um, you know, but on the radio, we might be hearing imperfect sound. We might be hearing cats and dogs. We might be hearing somebody crying in the background. And how is that going to change our, our sonic space? I hope it would open it up. I hope it would privilege or prioritize at least imperfect audio. Because as, you know, some, some podcast, female podcasters have said, I mean, there's a story in that sound. There's a story in the imperfect kind of domestic audio. Um, and for that to be regularized would be fantastic. Um, but I, but I would say, um, I'm just even thinking right now in order to even make this podcast, I have a system of barriers put in place to handle the fact that I have three kids and two dogs and a husband working from home right now. And I have a series of gates 
uh, people on different dogs, <laughs> like everything to try to create yeah. this sort of more perfect, right, audio soundscape. So I don't know. Um, I don't know if that impulse uh, is is going to quite die for um, the most professional audio, the clearest kind of most perfect sound, which then eliminates a lot of a lot of voices from from the airwaves. Yes, I usually go to the car and I was thinking like, dang, I should have gone to the car. But then it becomes like, can I get the Internet to broadcast mm-hmm. from the car? The sound will be great because of all of the Steph Sarasso writes about all of the wonder, you know, all the car technology to make it a quieter ride. So you got you can use that yeah. in terms of your studio. But yeah, then you might not have the Internet and then you'll be coming in and out. And <laughs> so if, if it's not one thing, it's another. Um, I feel like, you know, my students laugh at me sometimes when I'm teaching because I look so panicked. And I'm like, it's like I'm producing a, a, a television show or something. And they describe me as you look like a hacker in a 90s or early <laughs> 2000s movie, like from the other side of the computer. <laughs> and I'm like, that's it. That's exactly how I feel. Like I just have a few minutes. I can do it. That's I feel like that's just Gen Z uh, you know, being shady to Gen X. Um, you know, I Jolie was a hacker. I'll take it. Jenny Stover, when you were it's on- a very it's a very powerful position to be a hacker, and I would yeah. I would just own that, Jenny Stover. Oh, yeah. Jen, when Jenny Stover, when you were on Radio Survivor back in 2018, uh, three years ago, you implanted an idea in my head that has never left that the i that that professional sound the 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 sound of a radio studio or professional recording studio is the sound of silence and when we hear anything other than silence that's a signal to our ears as consumers that we're not listening to professionally recorded sound and yes. it's it's quite a it's quite a moment for sound uh, during the pandemic, um, whose whose homes are quiet enough to pull off the trick, and who lives in a space uh, where they literally would not be invited on a television program because because they cannot produce quiet, they just can't. Like my apartment has this many people, and that's how it's gonna it's gonna sound uh, it's gonna sound chaotic no matter what. Which is also a uh, um, I just have to mention, like, how do kids go to school in that soundscape? You know, there are some there are some students who are going to have a very noisy home. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that 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 um, it makes me think of some advice that someone gave me before I started teaching online this semester, um, and they said that the best way to teach online is to act like you're a DJ, which is a very sort of Gen X like like we would understand that. Yeah, yeah, you're a DJ, um, just kind of riffing <laughs> online, and that's like the best way to kind of get your your point across. Yeah, yeah and I think we've talked about it before. Maybe. Many of us have that college radio DJ pass to draw on. <laughs> yeah. I, I was, you know, it, it's really interesting to think about, like, also, at least for me, when I'm teaching, I've had students be all sorts of places, you know, in the hallway, on the floor, like just trying to come to class. And I think that one of, you know, back to thinking about the the tenacity of women in the 20s, 30s, 40s, trying to get on the radio and, and broadcast and be heard. I feel like now it's like the tenacity to, to listen and, and be included. I was on a panel with um, 
uh, for Cornell that was actually about um, incarcer- incarcerated poets and kind of carceral soundscapes. And, and there was someone on that call who was speaking from their roof in the Bronx. And so it's like, I, I think that is, you know, is very powerful to, um, you know, that, that it, as much as it reveals all sorts of, of, you know, things about the inequities in our society and who has access to internet, who has access to, to mm-hmm. quiet, um, the fact that we're all trying, I feel like I'm trying so hard to listen to everyone in my class, um, that, you know, that's remembering that, that kind of desire to pull people in and hold them close through these technologies, I think is important. And Jenny Stover, you, you talked a lot when we had you on previously about all of us being these more active listeners, like you're talking about, and, and maybe if you could share some of those tips, um, especially, especially now when I think more people are attuned to the work that we all have to do to create a better anti-racist world. How would you suggest, what are your tips on how, how we should be listening to other people? Wow. Um, I guess like my, you know, one of my techniques is truly always to meet people where, where, where they're at and, and how they speak and how they, they feel comfortable speaking. Um, one of the things that as a, you know, we have no official language in this country and, you know, there's, you know, that there's a very strong English dominance. And I think that, you know, there are so many people in this country that are bilingual that um, we all have accents, all of us do. And, you know, there's been so much racism directed in the past four years, four and a half years to people who speak accented, so-called accented English. And I, you know, I always remind my students that, that it's, you know, we have to also have, have accented ears. We have to become all of us um, experts in listening to, you know, to, to the sound of English in multiple accents, um, you know, and all of us, I think work toward being, being multilingual as well. But, um, you know, once, listeners start thinking about, you know, oh, I can't understand you, et cetera, et cetera. Then you stop listening to, to anything at all. Um, and that's one thing I definitely, for monolingual English speakers in the U.S., that's one of the things I, I very much stress. Yeah, I like that idea of of putting the onus on the listener. And that's that's something that maybe we always think about is is putting work into our listening. Yes. Yes. We, you know, it traditionally, especially white listeners have, you know, demanded that everyone else shape their sound to, to their ears when, you know, uh, we need to be thinking like, Oh, I need to become more competent in listening to, you know, someone with uh, a Danish accent speaking English. Like I can get competent at that, you know? Right. Yeah. In the United States, media environment every audience member loves a british accent and nobody wants to hear a you know a mexican accent on their this is these are the extremes that that i'm highlighting that's the voice of jenny stover associate professor of english at 
Binghamton University and co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Sounding Out Sound Studies blog. We're also here at Radio Survivor, joined by our guest, Jennifer Highland Wong, adjunct professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We're talking about voices on the radio, women's voices, especially uh, during this Women's History Month. My name is Eric Klein. You're listening to Radio Survivor. My co-host is Jennifer Waits. So, so who should we look? Who should we? We're talking about Women's History Month. We've talked about a lot of things today, and and I'd love to get some ideas from both of you about who we should be listening to now. Are there are there women's voices on the radio and on podcasts, either today or historically, who who you have found um, inspirational? Uh, you know, who whose wisdom you've appreciated. Um, shows and people and podcasts that we should be sharing with our listeners? What a great question. Um, you know, this sounds, um, this may sound silly, but uh, I always think about Gracie Allen. I don't ah. think that people really talk about her um, and her contributions. If you think about the fact that um, with George Burns, uh, she partnered in a show that ran I believe on radio from 1932 to 1950 and then continued on in television was sort of, you know, uh, kind of pioneering both uh, in both media. Um, and uh, it really, the, her, the popularity of them as a duo relied almost solely on her voice, right? On the power of her voice um, and the linguistic slapstick that she could sort of engage in. So that would be my first first instance. I would suggest in terms of, I was like trying to go through my, my stitcher to, to see honestly, like what my, my podcasts are that I listen to the most. And I, I have three to recommend the contemporary podcasts. Um, I love the read. Um, the read has been on for a long time. You're here. Crystal, yes. Yeah, oh Crystal as um, both Crystal and Kit theory um, and the way that they, understand and think about and talk about popular culture and life and you know race gender class queerness like it it's you know it's like like you know being being in a conversation with the friends um and and i love that podcast i also really love a podcast called locator radio locator radio and they are they broadcast out of los angeles and they they call their podcast a radiophonic uh, novella and they did a podcast for Sounding Out that is continues to be really popular. And that's one thing I like about our podcast on Sounding Out to give us a plug is that people will listen to a podcast that we put out two or three years ago that, you know, that, that those are there, you know, for, for a long duration. And they did a podcast for us about, it's called The Sonic Landscapes of Unwelcome Women of Color, Sonic Harassment, and Public Space. And the hosts, uh, Mala Munoz and Diosa Femme, talk about, you know, their, their daily lives where they're, they're walking down the street and, you know, getting harassed, um, you know, getting sexually abusive language thrown at them and noise and, and how they actually use their headphones as a way to, to block that out. And that post um, is, you know, continue, unfortunately continues to be, to be really important um, and circulates. But a lot of the other episodes of their podcast are very much like the read where they go in and out of talking about popular culture and, and issues that are important to their listeners. Um, 
they started their podcast out of a community space called um, Espacio 1839 in Boyle Heights, where they have um, a community podcast set up where folks can come in and, and record their sound, um, which has been, I think, really valuable in the podcast movement that the various community spaces have cropped up, kind of like the early radio when so much of it was was local. And um, but now, you know, the podcast can go can go all over. I also love Waiting to Exhale by Karen Tonkson and Winter Mitchell Rohrbaugh. It's, it's exhale with an X for Generation X, um, looking back on the culture, all the culture from the past that you need to know for the present. And they have um, great, great humor and really awesome approach and for you know, what it's like to be a woman of color talking about um, Gen X issues. Right. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you said the word Gen X. And my, I went back to Kathleen Hanna, who you name checked earlier in today's podcast. And um, how often do I think about Black women Gen Xers when I conjure up my, 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 uh, you know, the the faces in the magazine that represent Gen X? Um, they're they don't they don't pop up as fast as so. That's exciting to to hear their voices. Yes, uh, definitely check out Waiting to Exhale. I will. Oh my gosh. And the read, yeah, the read has um helped me to be a better person because I don't have enough friends like like the hosts of the read, but when when I get to listen to their show, um I feel well informed. I'm learning. I'm learning every episode and it's funny and fun. Yes. And they've done a lot to to publicize therapy. And um, Crystal, I was reading, she's actually going to become a licensed therapist after working on that that podcast. That's something she wants to do. And I think that's right. been especially Aww. important. Yeah, millennials really are cool. growing up, aren't they? They're so. <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> that's it's wonderful to, uh, yeah, as a Gen Xer to condescend a little bit. It's nice to think about what's gonna what's going to come from the from the culture of millennials as they as they turn into middle-aged elders and and do do what grown-ups do in this world. We're very lucky to have them. <laughs> well, yes, they're they're certainly there 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 now and we've had millennial scholars on the show reminding That's us true. that they are, you know, <laughs> older than you think, Eric. So <laughs> well, it's, um, it's because I refuse to consider how old I am that I still continue to condescend to them as youngsters when they've in fact earned their stripes earned their gray beards yes we have we have we have many strong voices across all the generations who we should celebrate um uh, do we have more time or are well, we so i i'm I, I kind of i kind of got weird nostalgic when we needed to just ask Wrap the up. last yeah the last strong question so again this would this stays in the podcast, but it'll be edited out from the radio show. We have we have three minutes left from the radio show, so let's ask a really strong. You just you asked you asked a wonderful. I could I could throw out another example if you yeah. want. I don't know. Please I, do. Yeah. Yes. I, I was going to say that the two other podcasts that that um, that I think are worth a listen to is Unladylike, um, which is um, Kristen Conger and. Um, uh, and Caroline, and I can't remember her name right now, um, but they're um, both unladylike and I would recommend the podcast Zigzag are both by female produced, are both female producers, female writers. They're, they're kind of developing a post, uh, both of those podcasts 
And the sort of like first attempt to do just sort of like a, a female gimlet, like to try to develop sort of like independent um, kind of production companies. Um, Unladylike kind of discusses all, 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 all things involved with um, gender and sexuality and, and zigzag um, features women talking about tech and, and future visions and of, of the society. And that's something that's um, kind of, overcomes some hurdles that we've had in our culture about what what kinds of subjects women should talk about and what kinds of subjects they sh- we shouldn't. Well, Jennifer Highland Wong, adjunct professor at University of Wisconsin, Madison, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor today. Thank you. And Jenny Stover, associate professor of English at Binghamton University and co-founder and editor-in-chief of Sounding Out, the Sound Studies blog and podcast. Thanks for joining us on Radio Survivor. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I hope you guys have time to continue to podcast. And so I, okay, what I neglected to an- to ask. We're still um, on the record, but now we are yes, speaking to our um, podcast audience once again. I, I want to hear more about some of the other projects that both of you are working on. Jenny Stover, I know you have a few exciting things to share with us. So maybe you could talk about that work. Yes, I've actually, I'd like to talk, since it's Women's History Month, I want to share the a current project that I am working on that, um, an oral history project where I'm interviewing Black women and Latinx women in New York City in the Bronx about their record collections. Oh my God. And I'm, yes, it's, it's a dream come true to, to have a project that just where I'm talking to, to other women about collecting records. And um, it came from um, some work I was doing on DJs and I was listening to Africa Bambada in particular and listening to some board tapes that they have at Cornell um, about his, you know, of his, uh, some of his early performances and the, the arch- archivist Ben Ortiz came over and he knows I collect records and, and he was telling me that, that, you know, Africa Bambada's collection is record collection the first 200 of those records belonged to his mother. And and that was the foundation of his collection that would grow to 40,000 records by the time that um, he, you know, gave it to, you know, or gave it to Cornell. And I was so excited by that little detail that my whole project and, you know, became, you know, working on finding and talking to those women, both about how their record collections change their lives and why they were important to them and this kind of revolutionary self-making that was going on in the 60s and 70s. And then also thinking about women, women playing records at home and as, as being a substantial part of, of our musical education and particularly the musical education of the, the children, their children who would grow up to be hip hop DJs and the way that women's participation in hip hop has been so um, misunderstood, I think is, is the right word that, you know, if women weren't DJs, if women weren't dancers, if women weren't, I mean, there were women who did all of these things, but we've only focused on those aspects of hip hop and seeing, um, public DJing. So actually thinking about women at home in their houses and how they use music to, you know, create home out of their their houses for their kids so that's been a wonderful project to to research and to get to you know before the pandemic i was able to talk to women in their homes with their collections and i can't wait to to do that again it's been very very hard um, and i've been very worried about 
about um, that generation of women right. too. Right. Oh that sounds gosh. like so much fun going into their home project. Yeah. Go in their homes and look at their records. Um, I mean, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about, you know, I've seen documentaries about record collectors and invariably it's all men who are portrayed, mostly white men. So yes. I love that you are taking a different look at who a record collector might be. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Many, funny. many mm-hmm. of us ladies like records. <laughs> yeah. Cause it yes. reminded me right away of the topic that came up 45 minutes ago that like, why, why are these objects gendered? in our you know why is the hi-fi system why is a why is why is podcasting equipment you know why why are the microphones that we use to make radio why do these all feel like boy toys you know well, not yeah, in the re- girl section of the toy I remember store. I remember going to buy uh, my stereo components you know when I was 21 and I wanted components because I was researching it and you know oh, God. wanted all the best gear and I remember feeling like I was in, it was not the space for me necessarily. It was a very intimidating process. And, and there are all these signals to you as a woman that this is not your space. Yeah. And I, it is very gendered. It's very gendered, you know, I even being at a college radio station. I should have shared this so that we could talk about, and we don't have to, but I just... Uh, a YouTuber that I really appreciate just put out a 25 minute long YouTube essay about why women don't feel comfortable in the spaces of music production and why 98% of professional music producers are men. And he's a, he's a Gen Mm -hmm. X man and a, and a relatively successful YouTube essayist. And, but he did a wonderful job of interviewing like six younger women music producers about um and they each one told their story of how they were almost chased out of the space yeah every well, time men, they, every time they yeah. asked a question about a microphone it became it became dangerous they're they're you know like it became a um they had to then fend off sexual advances like asking a question about how how do you use microphones in a studio space became, am I safe right. going over to your house to learn these things or you know, uh, and they, oh yeah, they all had those stories because you're such a novelty and and you know we've heard st- when you mentioned Kathleen Hanna, I was thinking about all these stories right. I've heard from women in bands about you know random dudes telling them how to use their own equipment and um <laughs> yeah. well yeah. one of the, one of the groups i was studying um she podcast which is an online sort of facebook community um and it one of the kind of reasons that it developed in the kind of early period of of podcasting was just to provide a space for women to ask questions that they couldn't get answered anywhere else about technology so where they could go and, and i and one of the very first episodes of she podcast um, has uh, different people, different female podcasters calling in and sharing the mic they use and the program that they use to do their editing on their podcast because there was no place for them to, to, to ask those questions and feel like they shouldn't be asking those questions. It, re- it reminds me of, you know, the Riot Girl days when I think it was Jenny Toomey, Simple Machines, where, I mean, there were actual... Uh, you would get a record that would have instructions about how to press a record and um, and different um, instructional tidbits about how sound worked, which I thought was so 
cool and important to just demystify that whole space and make it a girl space as much as a boy space? Yes, I like demystifying the means of production is very important and has been very radical at, at many points in history. And I think, you know, people doing that work are, are awesome. I, I, I'm guessing a lot of it is going on on YouTube now, but I definitely remember those in zines. There's actually a zine called Women in Sound. Yes, yes, that yes. Has, I love that zine so much. Um, I also love what the, you know, women's audio mission they're doing and trying yes. to hosting those um, really cool um clinics that they have about sound and, and having free classes over the internet. Um, I just saw a great talk by Anango Lumumba Kasango, um, who goes by Samus, who is a producer, rapper, PhD, who is now at Brown University, where she is working in their studio there and doing um, also doing video game music mm. and, you know, breaking into all of those, those worlds. And she often talks about people wanting to, just have her make them be make make beats for them without getting paid yeah. as as a woman like it's an honor to do that or people don't think that she made them and so you know but <laughs> yeah. which happens to her all the time so she talks about it in a lot of her raps which you know talking about that i think is really important and she studies community community recording studios and you know this very oh. same kind of raced and gendered dialogue like what are the politics around community recording studios and um, there's one here in Ithaca and she also looked at one uh, on the African continent as well to kind of like do a comparison no I'm so excited what I want to know everything about that <laughs> let's let's well, you should have you should yeah. have me non go on please <laughs> like she's she's excellent she's, she would be a, a great person for the podcast she's actually working on right now a video game music for uh, a app-based game based on Insecure, the Issa Rae mm-hmm. series on mm-hmm. HBO. And they are recreating the rapping in the mirror um, as part of the game that Issa Rae does. And so she was talking a couple days ago about very detailed granularly how they selected words um, for the rap in the game and how you know, words they decided not to include, words they decided to allow players to only use in positive ways. And, you know, thinking about, you know, race being race and gendered in terms of um, hip hop too. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, how many women rap at home in their mirrors and it becomes a way of of journaling. Um, And that kind of performance at home has, has a lot of value and meaning to, to people. And we never, we, you know, I won't, we, it's not a topic of conversation in these academic spaces where people are wanting to study an art form. It's always, you know, back to the very, the Angela McRobbie and Jenny Graber piece from, you know, the, the 80s about studying subcultures. And, you know, the, if you only study what happens out in the streets, you're missing a lot in terms of women's um, women's practice and getting together and playing records, talking, a lot of that happens at home. Yeah. And that, I was just going to say that such great parallels with Jennifer Highland Wong. And so I'm glad you're jumping in, you know, like I love the idea of the rapping in the mirror and I'm sure 
I'm sure you're about to jump on something related yeah. to that. Oh my God. I, was, I, was, I was actually going to to ask, like, are you are you looking at contemporaneous sort of women for your oral history project? Are you talking about like women right now? I mean, it makes me think that like the really the 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 association I have with sort of record collectors and and players is really starting to think about like the Hugh Hefner Playboy. I mean, that was like a a cornerstone to Playboy magazine is this sort of like, you know, you, you're, you're collecting these records, you're having this particular kind of home, you have this certain kind of apartment, this so, whole lifestyle, so right? For seduction, your record. Right, right, right. Oh, and it was, and it was just, and women were just kind of pushed out of it. Yes. Um, and the idea that women's collections aren't really collections, you know, that a lot of the, 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 things I've read from that era and from, you know, the kind of, you know, even earlier 78 collectors, and I'm kind of looking at research on all these groups. And it's like, women's, women's collections weren't considered collections, because they actually played them. And, you know, it was, it was right, it was the people who kept stuff, VG plus and M in there, and, you know, want to talk about different pressings and all of that. Like, I really I have a I have a record collection and I have no desire to talk with anybody about any kind of fancy pressing. Um, you know, I'll buy a record for $2 if it sounds good and I can play it at home and um, it has meaning to me and I play records almost daily. Um, and so the idea of, you know, women's record collections as yeah, being, being meant to be used, or if it's not, it's not a collection if you don't have like 85,000 records that you're standing in front of, like, Look at all my purchases, you know, and, and you know, women's monetary power um, has 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 grown and but was really limited. I mean, when Hugh Hefner was buying records, women couldn't get credit cards, you know, in their own name. So, you know, thinking about that um, is is important, too. And a lot of the women that I've talked to, um, you know, even when they had little else in their apartments during very lean times in the 70s, they had their record collection. And if their stereo got stolen, they kept their records until they could get another stereo. And they took them from apartment to apartment. And the value of that collection, I know how heavy it is to move records. Um, <laughs> I've done it way too many times. And 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 that that says something really deep about the role of music in their lives. I bet Jennifer's thinking the same thing I'm thinking, because this happens to us all the time. We learned that... Um, uh, when we had Lerone Martin on the show to talk about, uh, I was thinking the same thing to talk about African American preachers on wax. That there were moments in history, in the early days of the recording industry, when black families would own records before they owned the means to play them. That the record, they they looked forward to the day that they could play the record, but they would purchase the record and display it in their homes as a as an item of high value of their culture um, because it was African-American voices on that recording. Um, yeah. That the object and yes, they <laughs> eventually they'd play it, but they held it, you know, it was on the mantelpiece first. Well, yes. and, a, and a PS to that on another, I think it was another episode. We talked about uh, people bringing records, immigrants bringing their huge right. record collections and right. imagine like, you know, it, that's even more complicated than moving across town with your record collection. But these were important, important ways to connect with their culture. Yeah. And also like new, they, they function, especially for, for folks that 
lived in the era where that was the main medium of, of music. You know, they function as mnemonic devices for, you know, moments in your life. My, my dad had the record collection at, at, at my house growing up and he kept them in very strict. Um, he played them a lot, but he kept them in very strict um, chronological order. So that helped me learn a lot of my my music history. But also, you know, when he would pull out a record from a certain year, then he would tell me five different stories about things that happened during that year. And so those records like were his life in a sense. I think about that a lot. You know, I, I don't want it to be the Gen X radio hour, but it often is. And I worry about my 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 younger millennial friends and their their lack of a collection um that they don't <laughs> that they don't um okay. well well different people process music differently um you know i right. so i think about doing a radio show where i'm pulling music from a wall but a, long, a lot of younger people have discovered music digitally, and so they don't think about pulling music from a sure. wall. Which is wonderful, the way but then, like, there's, like, um, be- because so, we so were mem- forced to own the object, we then were able to hold a memory for longer than these poor kids are necessarily provided the opportunity to. Like, how do you remember what you loved 10 years ago if you don't have that object? It's a little bit ludicrous, I don't know. I mean, their brains work differently. So I think they forget. It's, it's hard for me to. I think they to put a finger on that. They have a Facebook memory that says, "Hey, you loved this album ten years ago." I don't. I'm being ridiculous. But I don't I do know. Think I it mean, matters. I mean, Je- Jenny and Jennifer, have you had those conversations with with younger folks? Do you have a sense of how people are storing their musical memories if they're not dealing with physical music? Physical mixtapes, uh, man. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I'm, they're thinking about two stories. One, I have a colleague named Mac Haygood, um, who works on Orphic Media, um, and we were discussing his book, and he was telling me, we were kind of talking about pandemic times, and we were talking um, about how everybody in his house, everybody's on their noise-canceling headphones, and so the soundscape that used to be shared, yeah. like exactly as Jenny is talking about, is is not happening as much anymore. That people are finding their own playlists and playing there, and they're not getting exposed to the same kind of music. And so it sort of changes that whole sort of soundscape. Um, I used to drive my son to school, and we would listen to music together or the radio. And he got in the car with me yesterday and was like. I've only been in the car with you like twice in the last three years. <laughs> like in that, yeah, we don't share a soundscape at all anymore. It's his yeah. and, you know, teenagers, like they get their own headphones. I don't know what I would have done without my Walkman. I tell you, like and the, they don't know about the expense of batteries to keep yeah. that thing running on a family vacation. Like, my goodness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was in the back listening to that too. Um, but my, I actually, my my kid, he he puts his music on in the car. That That's actually good. becomes a space where I listen to yeah. what he wants to listen to from his and phone. Yeah, like and I'm he's dr- like, here's my here's the song I like, and he plays it from the phone to the Bluetooth. Is that what's happening? No, it's actually radio. He's oh. getting really into like pop radio. So if I don't hear yeah, like BTS is dynamite at least once a day, like something is weird over here. So it's like hearing. Um, and that's actually, I like that song. He laughs at me for, um, <laughs> like, and actually I'm like, I know that that's going to come on. And he goes, how do you know? 
And like, now I'm like, radio you know, works. I have radio right, works. exactly. Like, you know, but when you're a kid and you don't realize, you know, that everything's clear channeled and, you know, he's like, that's amazing that you knew that song was going to be played, you know? Um, yeah. He's, if, if he's only, they are only 12. So they're still kind of figuring out what they're, what they're into. But, you know, I bought him his own re- record player when he was really little. Literally and the uh, record player. Yes. Um, Third Man Records put out this great portable stereo thing a couple of years ago. The sound is great on it. It even, you can put batteries in it. You could take it to the beach if you wanted to or whatever. And so I bought that for him and I would give him 20 bucks at the record shows that I'd go to because he'd be so bored and I'd want to stay longer. And so I'm like, here's 20 bucks, buy whatever you want from the dollar bins, go crazy. And he was buying stuff, you know, he really liked prog rock because of all the dragons and stuff on the covers. Like he's got a great prog rock collection, but he, he just did it. You know, he didn't take to it in the ways that, that I did, you know, like I would lay there all day and, you know, look at things. I attempted the same thing as a Gen X parent. I'm sure Jennifer did as well. Where like we, there were times where it's like, this is your boom box. Like we got it for you from Goodwill. Here are tapes. You can listen to these tapes. These are mom's tapes. Let's go get you some CDs from the library. Do you like these? And like one time as a six year old or seven year old, he like sat down at a very, very hip music store in Portland, a music store. That's both a boutique and a record label. So they have a very good, record and cd collection and he sat down at the super gen x listening booth which i'm sure is going way out of style Uh, a record store a physical place where you could go to sit down to listen to different discs in your headphones to decide which one to purchase with your money and take out of the store um and he picked out a uh this band that your son would probably like called uh magic sword Oh yeah, I can already tell. It's um, it had a cool sword on the cover, but it was also extremely awesome synth, uh, you know, uh, like electric drums, but like rocking guitars and synth. I love Magic Sword. I actually, um, (laughs) we loved them so much that one of the tracks on that album became the song that we would use in our father son podcast when he was little. And then I reached out to them and asked them permission. And they're like, sure, that's awesome. So they they gave us permission to use their Magic Sword song. Um, so that became the sound of our shared time together in front of microphones, our father-son song. I, I love I, – yeah, I mean we just have different – parent-child experiences with sound, you know, it it sounds like we still have those relationships with our kids with sound. It's just a little different than we might've had with our parents and their record collections. I was, I was so proud not all that long ago when my daughter was asking if I had any Cocteau twins, which like, it's like a band I love so much. And I'm like, let me pull out my, you know, lovely box set. That's like a prized, you know, a prized possession of mine. And, you know, so she has, you know, she's interested in popping in CDs every once in a while and um, and has her record player and has bought some albums. So I, I think that, you know, just growing up with people like us, they're going to have maybe a slightly different relationship with physical music than the typical kid. Remember, Paul and I had a really special episode on where we <laughs> we played Gen X Radio Hour, Grandpa and we grilled this very uh, 
delightful. I think you hooked us up with the with the guest Jennifer. Oh, was, somebody from KFJC who yeah, was a he, teenager and was like, he, and he was like twenty, right? I think you might have met them when they were. Yeah, they, yeah, he started when he was like fifteen and at the we, station. So we we had the opportunity to have a, a Gen Zer explain to us why he still loved physical media and listening, and made us feel like the, that we were in good hands, that the future was in good hands with at least some uh, some very uh, good listeners who care about sound. Um, he gave me a, a lecturing about um even name dropping the company spotify on our podcast it was wonderful he's like how i don't i do not listen to spotify yeah it's nice for me to get that um well i i wonder if we're approaching the end of our time um i thank you so much jennifer highland wong jenny stover eric klein Uh, it's i i knew i wanted to do something special to mark Women's History Month, and it was a pleasure to have both of you on again. Your your episodes, I can't believe they were, you know, three years ago in 2018, were were really instrumental in in so many ways um, for the Radio Survivor podcast. So it it's been great to have both of you on together. Thank you so much. Yes, it's been great talking with Jennifer's about sound. This is <laughs> like it's a true pleasure. Yes, did Jennifer? Uh, did you get a chance to talk about your what you're working on right now? Because I know I mentioned my project, oh. but oh yes, I want to make sure that you have. Um, you can cut that back in, right? Yeah, I know no, you don't like it. everyone's still rolling, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, you don't yeah. like those nonlinear. Cuts, but... <laughs> That's right. Good. Well, I'll just leave yeah. in the nice things. Well, I'll, I'll ask, I'll ask the question. Actually, yeah, thank um, you. So Jennifer Highland Wom, I'm excited that I actually am going to be on a, f- a fly on the wall at the um, SCMS conference. Um, I got a press pass. So I, I see that you're going to be speaking about knitting podcasts. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so I'd love to know about that and anything else that you're working on right now that you want to talk about. Um, the, for the knitting podcast, I'm still early in that research. That paper's not yet written at this point. Um, but, uh, I am working on, um, I'm just kind of really fascinated by that. The very first, some of the very first knit, uh, podcasts that were by women were knitting podcasts. And again, like it's a tactile medium. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, but if you start to look at the sort of post 9-11, the DIY craft movement, um, there's a connection with sort of like riot girls and craftivism. And so I'm kind of looking at this idea of like these early knitting podcasts as like these political public spaces is like women kind of claiming these spaces for this activity that they love that um, in a lot of ways has political sort of implications. Um, and so I was just kind of fascinated. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm working on, on right now. And I have a piece that's coming out and saving, um, uh, uh, saving sounds. It's about the podcaster database. Um, that's going to be coming out on, on early women podcasting. Back to the, Back to the knitting podcast, this makes me think about, isn't there a historical, historically, isn't there a connection between some of these domestic activities um, and activism? Like even going out in public and I don't know, is it, 
Does it yeah. serve as sort of a disguise for activism efforts too in the in history? For sure. I mean, it, it, you know, I was been doing some reading on sort of like the early history of knitting, and that even back, you know, sort of in the Re- Revolutionary War, I mean, to be knitting your own garments would be a kind of protest against British, uh, you know, exporting British or importing British goods for for clothes. Um, there was a lot of um, a lot of stories about World War One and World War Two about women. Um, being spies by putting codes and things in their knitting and they were kind of able to kind of be out in public and uh, sort of work on in particular there's a there's a spy in uh, world war ii that was able to like land in normandy and um, put these codes into her into her knitting um and and if you just th- start to think now about i um i'm trying to figure out like uh you think about the practice of yarn bombing of like claiming public space, you know, by, by wrapping and knitting around a tree, um, or, uh, uh, the pussy hats, the pink pussy hats for the women's movement. I mean, like it's, it's, um, it, it seems like a way for people to be active and find community. Um, but, but with a very, with a political message. I mean, so I'm kind of like looking at that as like, are these knitting podcasts, are they really these political spaces because women's voices aren't, um, uh, aren't always getting into public space and how hard it is for us to plant our flag and claim public space. I love that. I can't wait to, to hear more about that later. Yeah, in my home, my partner, it's like a, it's an act of love and um, support it's like a, there's, I know that I am uh, cared for and warm because of the things that get knit for me. Mm-hmm. And that I know that my partner also expresses their love for their community with knitting projects. Like you get a hat, you be warm. Here's the good hat. I hope, you know, here are the, co- I, I chose these colors or you, which colors do you like? I will make this hat for you out of the colors you choose. I'll go get the good yarn. Um, Mm -hmm. Gosh, and there's like my favorite bookstore, which I miss so much because I don't enter stores, is a yarn, a yarn and book store um, here in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Uh, There's nothing sadder than a yarn store in pandemic because you just can't feel like you can touch them. You know what I mean? Like you can't go into them and you can't touch them all. It's coming back. (laughs) Um, well, that, that, that tactility around knitting, like it actually, well, I'm sure you already know that, but it helps you listen better. Like, you know, you'll, I've often seen people knit at conferences. I've suggested to my students that are having problems in class, sitting down and staying focused, that they find something to do mm-hmm. with their hands and something rote and something. Um, and, and that's a, a key to, to, yeah, to, to concentration. Um, Heather Ordover, the the woman that I mentioned about Craftlet, one of the reasons she started her podcast is that post 9-11, she was a teacher and kind of helping kids deal with trauma sort of after 9-11. Mm. Um, she had them knitting and working, working with knitting and kind of like, you know, using that as a way to sort of work out the, the trauma of it. Yeah. Um, I, I often have my students um, in their first part of our course, we do sort of uh, radio, uh, you know, uh, you know, for the first, you know, five or six weeks. Um, and it's kind of tough sometimes actually like the generation, maybe 10 or 15 years before it was rougher than now, at least when they have podcasts and they have this habit of listening. Um, but I have them color 
when they, when they listen, because that's like the, that just like gives them enough, you know, like takes part of their brain and keeps them busy, but, um, but they can still listen. That's very meditational. Mm -hmm. One other thing I know we're trying to wrap up, but you guys can just be like, no, uh, we're done. Um, I just wanted to say the word mommy bloggers and talk about it a little bit. I just, I really, I have a, there's a YouTuber that I love again, every, my whole life is YouTube. Um, he used to be a famous podcaster. He, he was a failure as a famous podcaster. Now he's doing quite well as a YouTuber. And the other day he just threw into his extremely popular cooking YouTube channel, um, just shade about mommy bloggers, just like, you know, those, those ill-informed non-science based, you know, hippie mommy blockers. And it felt that's very... a, that's a very, well, I remember talking to Jennifer Highland Wong about this when she was on three years ago and, and, and Jennifer Highland Wong used that term more sort of lovingly, but yeah. you know, this, um, when I think of a prominent male podcaster throwing that term around, that just, it just know, reeks right? of sexism. I, I, I respect his work so much that I won't name him right now. Maybe I should. Uh, but I actually put a comment up that enough with the hippie punching and well, you know, mommy well, the women, shaming the women. I mean, that's yeah. But Jennifer Highland Wong, please. I was just going to say that, you know, I was just in my research, I was listening to an episode of this week in tech from 2005. Um, and there was a moment in which they mentioned, I think they must have been at the podcasting expo. And, and the, the, this week in tech has a kind of bro, like it's like a bro pod save America kind of vibe to me, you know, for me. Um, and they uh, were started talking about how uh, they're even knitting podcasts now. And they just kind of laughed about it. I was so mad. <laughs> they made a whole bunch. They made a whole bunch of um, of people in the knitting community mad, and in particular, um, one of the Brenda Dane, who's one of the knitting early knitting podcasters. Um, she was going to organize uh, some sort of. Uh, kind of protest to this week in tech by asking people to send in mp3s of what their names were what their shows were about and she was going to send it to the this week in tech to just kind of prod them a little bit in 2005 like a in 2005 yeah like a hey don't be a sexist yeah yeah and they and they were and they were like you know sure sure we can have it about everything now sure you know like like they were just we just really smarmy about it and and you could probably tell them that there were knitting podcasts before this week in tech i'm sure right well um you know i I don't know uh this week in tech was pretty darn early um so so like you know the what the rss feeds what 2004 early 2005 and so um the very first knitting podcast i think was in March of 2005. Hmm. So it's up there, but yeah, but it, but it, but it was, it just showed like how quickly it was really a guy space or, you know what I mean? Like that, it was just silly that there were uses for it other than what they were doing. Wow. Oh, and I just, I should say, I didn't have a chance to fangirl. So Jenny, I love your book. love your book it's fantastic oh my goodness thank you so much i'm really glad that that you find it useful and that you um that you enjoyed it as well that just makes me so happy um (laughs) it makes it makes you really like want to work in race and sound Mm. like you just like you've kind of turned you've turned 
I don't know, you just the way that you posed questions, you, I felt like you just kind of turned the subject on its head. And, um, and I'm just absolutely fascinated by it. Well, the more of us that are working on tearing down those hierarchies, the the better. Um, I'm actually excited to uh, to share that there is a new project that I have been involved with called the Stand for Sonic Diversity. We were talking a lot on this program about kind of the institutional practices that silence women's voices and silence um, BIPOC voices, and the. A group called Studio Resonate has um, combined with Pandora, Sirius XFM, and Stitcher to um, get other folks in the professional sound professional community to pledge specific actions toward diversifying the sound of voiceovers. They are striving to have Black voices represent at least 15% of the total voiceover roster. They want to increase Black voice talent by 30% over 2020. Um, they want to, I can't believe they actually have to write this, but you know, we were talking about this in the 40s, never direct Black voice talent to sound more Black or less Black or use Black scent. Um, they want to, I mean, it's, it's, it's real. It, it happens to a lot of voiceover performers. Oh my even God. Now. Do you, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, yes. but do you remember sometime during pandemic times, this story broke and was dominated my life for a week and disappeared. And I don't think I ever talked about it on the podcast. It was a lit magazine. Do you, did you catch this Jenny Stover? Maybe I should just let uh, it go. There was a oh lit, my goodness. There was a yes, lit magazine and a woman, a black woman's essay was read in their podcast by a white dude, a white voiceover dude who took it upon himself to invent a black scent for this woman's voice. And um, yeah, do you know this story better than me? I do. I do. Um, and I think the intro to my book will tell you that, that um, all white dudes have that sound in their, in their heads. Um, that's part of the conditioning in, in this country. Um, yes, that, that unfortunately happened to a very dear colleague and friend of mine, Regina Bradley, who was a longstanding regular writer on Sounding Out for many years. She published with us posts on Sandra Bland, posts on um, posts on Jordan Davis, posts on um, Beyonce, like covered all sorts of political and, and cultural commentary together. And that was really devastating. Um, it was such a personal piece for her and to, to be sub so, yeah, to be subjected to that um, and have that be, you know, she didn't even get to hear it. They didn't even run it by her. Um, or just, you know, why, why she didn't get to read her own work. Um, but that decision was, was just ridiculous. And so this is exactly what the, the stand for sonic diversity is, is working against. And they also want to, um, you know, have, have BIPOC represent at least 50% of the total roster for, for all voiceover organizations and to make sure to refuse to support casting where white voice actors are cast in black roles. That is right in their, their pledge. So you can check that out at standforsonicdiversity.com. And, and they're also, you know, they're striving to also diversify what the standard American voice sounds like because they were finding out that they did an audit, this group, and by default, 
these, whenever, you know, uh, advertisers were using that as a code, general American as a code for white. And um, so they want to make sure that, you know, what we hear as quote unquote general American um, is diversified. It occurred and to they, me. It occurred to me yeah. while you were answering that the reason I know that story is because I follow you on Twitter. I'm sure of it. That, that was probably <laughs> why I why I remembered that it existed at all. Um, credit, oh my gosh. credit to Jenny Stover. <laughs> the, perfect, the perfect media feedback loop. Well, it's wonderful to see. I've never met Jennifer Halloween in person, and we you know we, we were on the, the strangely we were on the same panel at um, RPTF. Oh um, my goodness! In, what, the second RPTF. Oh, wait, wait. Yes. With, um, with Neil. Yep. 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 Yes. Okay. Yes. So we only met very super briefly. Yes. Yeah. That, cause there there were like six of us on that panel and we each had like five minutes. It was one of those, but like, go, go, go. (laughs) Well, next time we're going to have to like spend some time together and go out to lunch. And I love the work that you've done for sounding out and work on gender and war of the worlds. And it's, it's really great to, to have some, get to spend some real time with you. Happy that we could facilitate that. And I think, I think the reason that I had both of you on was, you know, because of presentations at RPTF. And I remember being jammed into these tiny rooms and yes. hearing snippets of like, oh, my God, I want to have everybody on this panel on Radio Survivor, which I think has pretty much happened. Um, yeah. You know, there's one panel that had like six people. I think we've had nearly everyone on eventually. So um, like Eric said, I think it was a turning point on Radio Survivor. Yeah, really strengthened mm-hmm. our show. Yeah, I think that's the you were at my you were at that conference because I think you talked to me after that and <laughs> have fun. Yeah, I was I was incredibly inspired. Our thanks again to Jennifer Highland Wong and Jenny Stover for being guests today on Radio Survivor. This episode was produced by Jennifer Waits and co-hosted by myself, Eric Klein. Today's show notes are a doozy and a wonder and a precious gift. Uh, They're online at radiosurvivor.com. This is episode number 289. And uh, we'll have links to everything discussed uh, today, including uh, the podcast recommendations that uh, came uh, somewhere, somewhere back in the conclusion of the first hour of the interview um thank you so much you know we it's become a pandemic habit that i'm sure will break as the as the spring unfolds of doing these longer interviews uh these two-hour episodes of the podcast Uh, but i hope that you find them as valuable as i do Um, i certainly uh, get a lot of I get a lot out of out of the extra time that I get to spend with our with our guests. It's a real privilege. Um, you can listen to this podcast wherever you get your time shifted radio, be it on the Stitcher platform, be it on the Apple Podcasts app. Uh, Google Podcasts has an app. There's even this one I hear called Spotify, where you can listen to podcasts. Um, all of these places are websites where radio survivor can be found for free and listen to anytime go ahead and subscribe to us there if you haven't done so already our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com where we are always 
anticipating hearing from you, the listener, uh, for whatever reason, be it feedback on our work or ideas for future episodes um, or questions that you might have for us regarding community radio, college radio, non-commercial radio, low-power FM radio, the history of radio, community podcasting, as well as our show. You know, just questions about our show. The email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Our project, both here on this radio show as well as on the website, is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more about how you can strengthen the work and support us moving forward, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support, where you can also find out more about our Patreon campaign, where we ask for micro donations on a monthly basis, sometimes as little as $1 a month, uh, to become, you know, a supporter of the project. And we have often given our patrons, our, our, our friends over there at Patreon who are supporting us, um, extra content as well as gifts in the mail. To find out more, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Well, on behalf of Jennifer Waits and Paul Reese Mandel and Matthew Lassar, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.